to God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verses 1 through 20 is our Old Testament reading. Deuteronomy, of course, the Israelites are on the brink of entering the promised land. Moses has brought them through, brought them up out of Egypt by the Lord's hand. And Deuteronomy is sort of Moses' last words to them, uh, the the whole book. He's telling them, here's what the Lord wants from you. Here's the Lord's covenant with you. Here's the Lord's law. Here's what the Lord has done for you. We come to the end of the book with Deuteronomy 32. And we read these words, particularly about this stubborn, stiff-necked, disobedient generation that has uh, been uh, with Moses in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 32, 1-20. This is the Word of God, so let's give it our full attention. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is He. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided the inheritance to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. You drank wine, the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. And have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, He spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and His daughters. And He said, I will hide My face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation children in whom is no faith. 
our New Testament text, Matthew 17, uh, verses 14 through 27. I want to make just one note before we read the text here. Um, I'm not going to read verse 21 um, or really address it in the sermon, uh, simply because it's not in the oldest manuscripts of Matthew. Um, it's in some other um, less ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, but it's not in the very oldest copies of the Gospel that are extant. Um, and so I think it's pro- it was probably slipped in later on uh, but by, a, by a well-meaning scribe who was thinking of what it says in Mark, because it is in Mark. Um, these very words are right there in the Gospel of Mark. Um, but I don't think it's... Uh, original to to Matthew's gospel. So we will not be reading verse uh, 21. If you have any questions about that, I'm happy to talk to you after after the service more. But let's go ahead and read now, starting with verse 14 of chapter 17. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the sons of earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask his blessing on it now. Our great and awesome God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken your holy and good and life-giving word. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts to receive it in faith, to receive it humbly, to receive it hungrily, 
to receive it joyfully, and Lord, to receive it uh, with, with, with a desire to, 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 to listen, to heed, to obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It must have been quite a letdown for the disciples as they came, off the, came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter, James, and John had just been up with Jesus. Mount of Transfiguration is the, the previous passage here uh, before where we pick up with verse 14. And they had seen the glory of Jesus Christ like they'd never seen it before. His face was shining like the sun. His garments were brilliant white. They heard the voice of God from heaven thunder out, This is my Son. I mean, that is, that is the mountaintop experience. Right? That, that, how, how good it would have been to be there. Isn't that exactly what Peter said? Lord, it is good that we are here. Um, and then they come down from the mountain. And uh, immediately, they're right back in it. Um, there's a crowd probably clamoring for Jesus' attention again. Uh, trying, trying to get to Jesus. There's this man who's uh, begging for mercy for his demon-possessed and epileptic son. There's all this evil and opposition and difficulty and, and, and brokenness and sin and, and, and all this stuff. And then Jesus predicts his death again and his betrayal, too. And, and then there's taxes on top of it all. They come down and this is what they are faced with. None of this, of course, surprises our Lord Jesus Christ. He had fully intended to come down from the Mount of Transfiguration into all of this. Um, This is his purpose. He came, right, not to insist on his rights and on his glory, uh, but he came to humble himself, to to come down and and serve us and save us. Um, He is the eternal Son, and He is the suffering servant at the same time. Um, We see Christ's wonderful condescension here to His disciples and to those around Him as Jesus rebukes His disciples for their unbelief here. He instructs them, He challenges them, and and He encourages them most of all. The disciples are distressed in the midst of everything that's going on. They're showing weak faith, even, even, even lacking, uh, lacking faith altogether, it seems. Uh, they're, they're showing uh, uh, a great distress and, and a grief and a confusion, but the Lord Jesus is patient with them. He teaches them. He's, he's teaching them in this passage to trust Him. He's teaching them in this passage a wonderful, wonderful promise that they are children of the Father, that they are children of God Himself, and therefore nothing with regards to the kingdom of God is impossible for them. Nothing is uh, going to overcome them because they are children of God and part of His kingdom. Loved ones, it's a promise that our Lord Jesus Christ is giving them, and it's a promise that He gives us as well. Our doubts are stubborn. It's easy to look at the disciples and say, there they go again, not trusting the Lord, right? But that's us. Our doubts are stubborn and our faith is weak and we are easily distressed. What does our Lord Jesus do with us? He teaches us. He rebukes, he challenges, he instructs, and he encourages, and he teaches us to trust 
to trust him. This is at the heart of the text here. These, these three different little passages, we see this wonderful promise. You're a son of God, part of his kingdom, and nothing's impossible for you with regards to his kingdom. We see this unfolded and unpacked for us in these three scenes here. The first scene gives us the promise. The second scene challenges the promise. The third scene grounds the promise. The first scene is verses, verses 14 through 20. As we said, uh, Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. The other disciples were not up on the mountain. They were down, down below, and, uh, and uh, they were um, apparently failing to help this, this man who was asking for help. This, this man comes to Jesus with his heartbreaking story. He's got an epileptic son. And his, his dear son uh, ha- has these seizures and his body is thrown into the fire or thrown into the water. And the father is uh, tortured by this. The father is grieved by this. You can imagine how it would be to have a child. Uh, and you saw that happening to them. How much you would be desperate for mercy. So he came to Jesus' disciples because he had heard they could, they could do something about it and they failed to do it. And so now he comes to Jesus himself, holding out hope that perhaps Jesus can do something for his son, save him. So he comes to Jesus and he tells him this. And Jesus' response is, is surprising. Right? We, we know the compassion of Christ. We've seen it on just about every page of this gospel, his compassion for the suffering and the poor and the downtrodden. We know his power, too, that he could heal, but he doesn't quite yet. He, he will. But, but first, he gives this puzzling response in verse 17. If you've got the text open, look with me at, at verse 17 and how Jesus responds to this man. His, his first words are, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? What is he talking about? Why does he say this? What's his point? His words are echoing an Old Testament passage, the one we read earlier, actually. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. It says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Notice what that's saying there. God's referring there in Deuteronomy 32, 5 to that generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt in the Exodus, they saw the wonderful works of God. God called them his son and he brought them out. But then they fought him every step of the way with their sin and their unbelief and their idolatry and their doubt. And so he God in Deuteronomy 32, 5 is, as it were, throwing up his hands and saying, you are no longer my son because you're just so perverse, rebellious and wicked. Um. They saw so many glorious things. They saw the power of God. I mean, the Red Sea split apart and they marched through it. And then they turn around and complain at him and doubt him. They reject him and they prove false, faithless and twisted. And Jesus here, he's taking that same language. And he's looking at this generation of Israelites around him. And he's seeing his disciples 
and their failure to trust the Lord. Not being able to cast out this demon was because they didn't fully trust the Lord. And Jesus is looking at their flawed faith, their weak faith, and he sees it as symptomatic, emblematic of the whole Israel around him, and their mostly complete lack of faith. And he says, you have done exactly what the Israelites under Moses did. You see the glorious salvation of God, but you don't see the glorious salvation of God. You reject it, and you turn from God, and reject the very Savior that he has sent. And this rends Christ's heart, and he says, how long am I to be with you? It's painful for Christ to be with his generation that won't accept him. And he's angered by it and frustrated in a holy way by it. And it's interesting, when you think about who he is, who Christ is as he speaks these words, he is actually the same God, isn't he? Who spoke back there in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And the same God who, who so often through Israel's history said a very similar thing. Um, right? Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah 31, 22, God says, How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? Speaking of His people, you can hear the anguish of God at His people's faithlessness. Or Numbers fourteen eleven, How long will this people despise Me? How long will they not believe in Me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? That's Numbers, but it sounds like Jesus in Matthew, doesn't it? He sees the unbelief of His people. He is done mightier works than Moses. He is God with us, standing there with the people, and they reject him. And even his own disciples, one of them not filled with saving faith, the others mixed in faith. Right? Even for them, they're not seeing clearly here. They failed. They lapsed into acting like the majority of Israel around them in this moment of of doubt and failure. And so Jesus cries out in holy frustration here at the failure of the unbelief of His people throughout the whole of the Old Testament and now come to a climax in His own ministry, their rejection of, of God Himself. And loved ones, this is a, a warning to us. You can see the most wonderful works of God and not believe, not trust reject him. The Israelites saw glorious things. Jesus' day, they saw glorious things. They saw him feed the 5,000, raise the dead, heal the sick, heal the blind, right? He himself raised up from the dead and so many rejected him. And in our own day, you and I, loved ones, we see so much of the mighty working of God. We open up the Bible and we read of the gospel of the risen Christ. And we come to church and we hear the word of the risen Christ speaking. It's a danger to reject it, right? The author of the Hebrews says we've, we've tasted something of the age to come. We've tasted the glories of the age to come. We've got this wonderful taste as you come week by week to the Lord's house and hear His Word. You get this taste of heaven itself. God will hold you accountable for what you do with it. It's a warning here. Jesus' Jesus' words are a warning here. You do not want to hear Christ say of you, faithless, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? 
how long am I to bear with you? It's a warning. Take care how we hear. But even though Jesus is grieved by the unbelief he sees, in his disciples, representative of the unbelief of all Israel, he still moves here in mercy and compassion. Uh, he, he does have compassion on the Father. Even though the Father himself uh, says in, in Mark's account, uh, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? There, there's mixed faith in him too in this scene. Uh, but, but Jesus nevertheless still saves. Uh, he still acts. He sends for the boy. The boy comes. Jesus rebukes the demon. The boy is healed immediately. And we see the authority and the power of Jesus here. Even the supernatural forces of evil can't stand against Jesus Christ. This is wonderful healing. Uh, but, but the focus in Matthew's gospel isn't so much on, on the man, the boy, uh, and this healing. It's really on the disciples' failure of faith, that they, they couldn't cast out the demon because they didn't have faith in God. They, they tried to heal this boy by their own power instead of seeking God in prayer. Uh, their failure was to trust the Lord. It wouldn't have taken an unusual amount of faith to cast out the demon, is what I'm saying. And it's what Jesus is saying, right? He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, it would move a mountain, right? Mustard seed-sized faith is enough, he's saying. Um, but then Jesus gives them this, this tremendous promise. So he rebukes them there uh, in, in this opening scene. But then he, he gives them this wonderful promise that with faith, even with barely any, right, just tiny mustard seed-sized faith, your kind of faith and my kind of faith, that... All things are possible. Nothing's impossible, he says. It's a staggering word that he says. Nothing is impossible. You say to the mountain, move, it'll move. Have you tried it? What does he mean? What does he mean? Nothing will be impossible. Does he mean that if I just believe hard enough, my bank account will grow? Or my, 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 that, that sickness that my, my loved one has will, will, will be healed. That if I just really trust, really pray hard, and, 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 and really believe. Right? That's what so some people teach us. Um, your life will get easier and better if you just really trust and pray hard. Uh, if you just believe, God will make it easier for you. Um, all these ways of understanding Jesus' promise are wrong. That is not what he's saying. He is not saying, here's this blank check of power, spend it how you want. Um, right? He's not saying, go enjoy your own little kingdom. Here's some supernatural power to, uh, to build it. Right? That's, that, that's what all these other ways of understanding his, his promise here are saying. He's saying, I would like to have the kind of power he's talking about to, to, to pursue my own agenda, my own purposes, my own ends, build my own little kingdom. But he's not... Of course, not talking about that. He's promising something much better than that. He is promising you that he will give you all the resources you need to live as part of his kingdom. That he will, he will, he will, uh, he will give you all that you need to live a holy life. That there's no obstacle to his kingdom 
that'll get in your way that by His grace you will not be able to overcome and persevere through and, and get the victory over eventually. He is promising you and His disciples and the church all the resources that we need for the Gospel. He's promising the, the endless, limitless power of God. Supernatural power of God to you to trust and to obey Him and to walk in holiness before Him so that you can, you can grow in holiness and wisdom and courage and love and peace and joy and strength to live the Christian life. He's promising all that you need for that. Not, not, not if you just muster up really good faith, but just, just mustard seed-sized faith is enough. Because it's not about, it's not, right, it's not this great, you know, faith, I, I believe. It's not this, uh, this brave decision I make, this force of my will. It's collapsing into Christ. And that's what faith is. It's receiving and resting in Christ. It's trusting in Him, crying out to Him, saying, I have nothing and I have nothing. You are everything and you have everything. And looking, looking to Him. Loved ones, seek His grace. Put your trust in Him. He promises you nothing will be impossible for you with regards to my kingdom and your growth and grace in my kingdom if you, if you put your faith in me. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. So he tells his disciples these things. And then in the very next scene, their faith is tested. Um, verses 22 to 23, we get this prediction of his death and resurrection. This is not the first time he's predicted this. It's the second explicit prediction of his death and resurrection. Um, in the first prediction, we read that he, Jesus began to tell them about what was going to happen to him. So it's not just as though these are the only two and then there's one more. Three times that Jesus tells about his death and resurrection. He, this is an ongoing lesson, and we're getting snippets of it. Um, an ongoing lesson that he's teaching them, that he has come to suffer. He's come to be betrayed, delivered into the hands of men, as he says, uh, killed, and then on the third day, raised up. Jesus won't let this go. He keeps coming back to it with his disciples. They, uh, they would rather forget it. They'd rather see it as, well, that, that's, a, that's not the main point. That's a sub-point, and we can ignore that one. No, he's saying this is the main point. He keeps coming back to it because it's the very heart of his mission. To be the Christ is to bear the cross. And this is looming up in front of Christ now like a tidal wave about to break on him. And uh, this, this is going to happen very soon. And he wants to impress this on his disciples that he came to suffer and die for our sins. He came to take God's wrath on himself so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Um, he's, he's just been describing, right, the power of God. And now he's talking about weakness. And it's wonderful because what he's saying is that this glorious power of God is going to be at work as I am betrayed, weak, whipped, crucified, and killed, and buried. That's where the power of God will be at work to accomplish his purpose and to bring his kingdom. And then he'll be raised up on the third day in resurrection life. And the new creation will dawn.
This is what he's saying to his disciples, that this is what God's power will look like, his death and then his resurrection. But the disciples, they, 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 can't, they continue to, to, to struggle with this. They can't understand it. Peter doesn't do what he did last time when he said, Lord, never will this happen. And the Lord rebuked him. Uh, but, but, but he and all the disciples here are deeply distressed. They're exceedingly sorrowful, the text says. They're upset. They're overwhelmed by grief. It's like they can't hear Jesus speak about his resurrection. They hear him say, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to be, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried. And then they can't hear anymore. They can't hear him finish the sentence. He said he'd be raised. Why are you grieving so much and distressed so much, disciples? He said he'd be raised. But they, they don't hear that part. They just hear the other part, and they are upset, and they are grieved, and they are afraid. Um, not all grief is because of a lack of faith, of course, but I think their grief here is because of a lack of faith. They're grieving without hope. Jesus has just told them, nothing will be impossible for the one who trusts and believes. The mighty power of God and Jesus just commanded a demon, and the demon obeyed. And, 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 and now, right, they're, they're, they're doubting his words about his resurrection, not trusting him. Um, Peter, James, and John just saw him in his glory on the mountain. I mean, how could you forget that so quick? But here they are, and he says he's going to be killed. And, and they, 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 are, they are overwhelmed with grief and fear, and they don't trust Again, it's easy to be hard on the disciples. We have a nice vantage point. Um, but if we look carefully at ourselves, we are so much like them. Because don't we see obstacles come up in our life? And we know the promises of God. And we know the goodness of God and the grace of God and the power of God and the gospel of God. We know Christ is risen and ascended and on the throne and coming again and will live and reign with him forever. We know it, but we forget it. We see these obstacles in our walk with the Lord, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, in our culture around us, and we fear, and we doubt, and we fail, and we don't trust. We see the valley of the shadow of death, and we can't imagine there's anything beyond it, even though God has promised it. So our faith, like theirs, is tested and often found wanting. So what does the Lord do with us? What does He do with His disciples here in the text? What does He do with us when, when we demonstrate once again our little faith? Um, the next scene reveals His response. Um, we see the promise here grounded in the, ne- in the next scene. Um, tax collectors come. These tax collectors come from the temple to Peter. And uh, they ask him if his master Jesus pays the temple tax or not. And, and Peter's answer is yes. He's basically saying, of course he pays the temple, the temple tax. These are interesting verses, aren't they? Sort of puzzling verses. Um, it's hard to understand at first why the passage is here. Jesus' disciples are distressed. They're upset. And the very next thing that Matthew, writing the gospel under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us is this story about taxes. Why is this here? Um, He takes us from the exceeding sorrow and fragile faith of disciples 
into this story. Um, but there's this wonderful, profound, and foundational truth embedded in this story about the taxes here. Um, so the, these, these men come to Peter. Does your master pay the temple tax or not? Yes, of course he does. Peter comes back into the house where he, where he was, and, and Jesus is there, and he is either overheard or by divine revelation he knows what just transpired. And uh, he anticipates Peter, the text says, and, and he questions him in verse 25 before, he can, before Peter can even speak. He says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter gives the right answer, verse 26, from strangers. Kings don't make their sons pay taxes, right? Um, the king's sons are free, Jesus says. Now, to understand what's going on, we need to notice that the tax being talked about here is not a tax the Roman government is putting on Israel. This is the temple tax. This is not a political tax. Later on in chapter 22, Jesus will address, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But this is not, that's not the issue here uh, in chapter 17. This is the temple tax. To get the background on this, let me read where this is established in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 30, verses 12 through 16. It's a little bit of a longer section, but I'm going to read it in full because this is where the Lord himself gives the temple tax to his people in the Old Testament. He says this in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12 through 16. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for, our for your lives. So there it is, in Exodus, God commands his people half a shekel from everybody 20 years old and upwards. As the, it, it'll, it'll fund the ministry that goes on in the tabernacle. And later it's applied to the temple. Half a shekel is about, at Jesus' day, it's about uh, equal to two days' wages for an average laborer. This is what's required to support the temple. But Jesus' point, brothers and sisters, in light of that, is this. Whose house is the temple? Whose throne is represented in the temple? Whose kingdom is represented in the temple? Well, it's God's house. God's throne is there. His mercy seat is there in the Holy of Holies. It represents God's kingdom. God is the king, right? This is his kingdom, his house that we're paying these temple taxes to. And now, should God's son have to pay taxes to support his own house, his own kingdom? Right? Jesus has just been revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration as the Son of God. And now he's saying to Peter, don't you understand it's my temple. 
I don't have to pay taxes to my own house, to my own kingdom, to my own father. This is my house, right? If you think about it, all the temple taxes are really being paid to Jesus, in a sense, right? To, 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 ostensibly to, to God. He is the Son. So He is free from the commandment of Exodus 30. The astonishing thing is, Jesus implies here that Peter is free of it too. Jesus says to Peter, the sons are free. Not the son, singular. Sons, plural. The sons are free. He's saying that if you trust in me, the son, you share in my sonship. You, you become adopted. You become a son too. You become just as much a son in God's sight as Jesus himself. So do you have to pay the temple tax? You don't owe God taxes. You're his son. You don't have to pay the temple tax. Your you're, you're, you're father is the king and this is his house. No, of course you don't have to pay it. Jesus doesn't have to pay it. Peter doesn't have to pay it. Instead of being taxed, you have a right and a title to an eternal inheritance as a son. Brothers and sisters, this is the position before God into which Jesus is bringing Peter and into which he is bringing us as well. Remember earlier in the, in the passage, or the first part of the passage, Jesus says, foolish, perverse generation. We saw in the context there of Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, where, where God spoke those words. He was saying to his people, you're not my son. That's in the context of those words. But now he's saying to Peter, you are a son. You're a son. The wonderful gospel comfort. And loved ones, this is the position before God into which Jesus brings you and me. He gives you the right to call God Father with the very same words that Jesus himself took on his lips to refer to his Father. Right? He gives you the right to call God that same thing. To, to know Him as Father, to have Him as, as, as your own God and Father. Romans eight fourteen through 17 uh, puts this so well. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So through faith in Christ, you become a son of God. But Jesus isn't just taking... right? He's not just saying to Peter, well, we can just take an eraser and, and open up the scroll to Exodus 30 and just right, wipe that part out. He's not just saying that part of the commandment, eh, delete it. We don't need it anymore. He's, he's, as he's uh, telling Peter this, he's, um, he's doing something much more significant than that. Um, if you notice, when we read Exodus 30, the reason everyone was required to give this tax to the temple was as ransom for themselves, for their lives. If they didn't do this, they, 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 they could have been put under a plague by God. This is, an, this is atonement money. Redemption money. 
that they were required to give. Now, of course, this money did not buy their lives. It just symbolized the purchase of their lives. And now Jesus has come. And he's come to pay the price himself. He's the son. He does not have to pay the tax. But he comes as the sacrifice to pay the tax. To pay everything for all his children so that they're free. He comes and and he lays down his life to pay the great atonement price. This is why we can be called sons when we're such sinners. This is why this is this this is this is why we can come before God and be accepted in his sight. We could never pay the debt we owe him. But Jesus comes. And he pays it himself with his own blood. First Peter chapter one, you were ransomed, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ. How do we respond to this amazing grace? Um, does this mean we don't have to tithe anymore? There's no commandment to give anymore? Well, there's no New Testament commandment to give a tenth. Um, there's no temple tax. Uh, uh, the shekel, or the half shekel you have to give annually. Um, you're a son. You're free. Heaven is yours. Um, but grace like this costs everything. The, the hymn puts it so well. Jesus paid it all. The next line. All to him I owe. Uh, Not just a half shekel once a year, but everything is his. Everything you are is his. This is the way that freedom as sons works. You're, You're free. You're free in Christ. You're free to live as God has called you to live. Um, not to cause offense, right? As, as Jesus goes on to describe to Peter, let's go ahead and pay this temple tax anyway because we don't want to cause offense. I'm making a, he's making a theological point with Peter. He's teaching him this important lesson. They're still going to pay the temple tax. But this is the freedom of being a son that he and Peter and you and I enjoy. It's the freedom to love and serve him and, uh, and serve one another, knowing who our Father in heaven is. So, Lord, as, uh, brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of the, as end of the text, do you see what our Lord Jesus has done with Peter? Right? Peter was doubting. Peter was discouraged. All the disciples were discouraged. And our Lord rebuked them, but, but now he leads them, he teaches them, and he encourages, and he, and he comforts them. And he does this with us in our doubt and our discouragement as well. He reminds us that we are sons of our Father in heaven and that he is the great king. And heaven is yours. God himself is with you. And so, all things are possible if you trust him. All things regarding his kingdom and your growth in grace are possible. Fear no foe, brothers and sisters. You're a son. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are sons in him. Father, we pray that we would respond in joyful faith and obedience. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.